In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe. Superman. Wonder Woman. Batman. Aquaman. And those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Hello, and welcome to the premiere episode of For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast. For All Mankind is a read-through show covering DC Comics' classic Super Friends series, which ran for 47 issues from 1976 to 1981. Proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and joining me this episode is my super friend, Sean Myers. Hi, Sean. Hi, Rob. I heard the trouble alert, and I came a-running. <laughs> Thank you so much, my friend. Yeah, this is very exciting. I mean, Sean is like the biggest Super Friends fan that I know, and so I thought it would only be appropriate for, for you to join me uh, for this uh, premiere episode of this show that I'm very, very excited to finally be doing. It's been something I've been kind of wanting to get to for a long time, so I'm very happy that you could join me. I'm so happy. I love the cartoon. I love the comic book. Everything about Super Friends just brings back incredible memories of literally sitting in front of the TV with my bowl of cereal or a popsicle <laughs> or something like that. Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. Sean made it very clear a while ago that if I was ever going to do the Super Friends Digest over on Digest, he had to be the guest on that. And then I made that happen. I didn't want Sean to get mad at me. So, uh, we, and that is something. You know what? We'll talk about the, the sort of the, the how the show is going to conduct itself at the end of the episode. Uh, and we have some other things that we're going to cover. I mentioned that uh, we're, we're going to be focusing on the 47 issues of the original series. But there will be some surprises that happen here and there during during the run. Uh, for me, like Super Friends was not – I won't say it's my favorite comic of all time. That's Justice League of America. But, of course, Super Friends is like the junior version of the Justice League of America. I love the cartoon like Sean did. And I never really saw a difference growing up in the books. Obviously, Super Friends is aimed at a slightly younger audience, but I never really saw that. I, I picked it up for Spidey Super Stories. Like that book, I remember thinking, ah, this is aimed a little bit lower than the age I was reading it. But I just sort of regarded Super Friends as just, well, this is just the comic book version of the cartoon. And, you know, it, it, it was so steeped in DC history. It was so fun to read that I never missed an issue. And it was one of the few titles that, like I said, I, no matter, even through spotty newsstand distribution, I managed to get every one. Did you, were you a regular purchaser of it when it was out on the newsstand, Sean? I actually wasn't. Um, I watched every episode of Super Friends, but the, the comic book, at the time, to me, did seem a little juvenile. Okay. How, All right. However, my first issue was number six. Then I got um, the great three-part issue series with seven through nine, where they introduced the Wonder Twins. Right. And I right. loved that. And then probably starting around issue 20, I probably started picking them up more regularly. And then from th issue 30 on, I didn't miss an issue. 
Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely just love the series, and I'm really looking forward to going through them all. I mean, there's some that I haven't read in probably decades, so I, I'm really looking forward to uh, digging deep and especially looking at all some of the wonderful artwork. There's some, you know, Ramona Frayden did a lot of these issues. That's going to be a total joy to look at. So well, let's jump right into the very first issue. Uh, the title is called The Fury of the Super Foes by E. Nelson Bridwell, Rick Estrada, Joe Orlando, Vince Coletta, Milton Snappen, and Jerry Serpe. It was on sale August 26th, 1976. In the Hall of Justice, Robin the Boy Wonder trains junior super friends Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. The rest of the super friends arrive, and Wonder Woman gently mocks the workout Marvin is complaining about, saying it's nothing compared to what she went through on Paradise Island. When Marvin volunteers for that, she informs him that only women can visit Paradise Island, putting a smile on Wendy's face. Meanwhile, another training session is happening, that of the Super Foes. The villainous members, Penguin, Poison Ivy, Toy Man, the Human Flying Fish, and the Cheetah, are putting their junior members, Chick, Honeysuckle, Toy Boy, Sardine, and Kitten, through their paces. The Penguin says the plan he's been uh, hatching is ready, so the villains split up and head for different cities. Back at the Hall of Justice, the trouble alert goes off, and it's a message from Dr. Michaels, head of Star Labs. He tells the Super Friends that alarms are going off at three different star facilities, putting Project SR in danger. Aquaman asks what that is, but Superman says he is sworn to secrecy. Dr. Michael says, hey, it's okay that the Super Friends know what it is, and Superman fills them in. Project SR is the ultimate weapon for peace, a robot to end all warfare, which is being assembled in those three different labs. Superman and Robin head for Hudson U, Aquaman for Cape Andrews, and Batman and Wonder Woman to Gotham City, with Wendy and Marvin tagging along. Using some Superman toys, Toy Man breaks into the lab at Hudson U, and Poison Ivy uses her vines to grab the electronic brain of Project SR. Robin gets kicked in the face by Poison Ivy, but feels as though he can't fight back because Ivy is a woman. Toy Boy shoves a lead mask on Superman, giving the villains enough time to escape, but without the electronic brain they came for. At the underworld lab at Cape Andrews, the human flying fish threatens the scientists working there, saying he will cut into the glass dome and drown them all if they don't turn over the super strong metal they are developing. They argue about what to do, but then Aquaman arrives. With the help of his finny friends, Aquaman chases the human flying fish off, but then is surprised by a face full of squid ink from Sardine. Like the villains did at Hudson U, they escape, but without what they came for. The same thing happens in Gotham. Penguin and Cheetah's plan is foiled, but then the Super Friends get tripped up by the villain's junior partners. Except this time, Wendy and Marvin are there to apprehend them, rendering Chick and Kitten prisoners. They are none too happy that their mentors have left them behind. Chick and Kitten are dropped off at the Hall of Justice under the supervision of Wendy and Marvin, while Batman and Wonder Woman continue chasing the Super Foes. After taking in the grandeur of the Hall of Justice, Chick and Kitten wonder aloud if they're on the wrong side. They ask for a tour of the place, not knowing that inside Chick's umbrella is a radio and that the Penguin has been listening the whole time. And the only one who notices is Wonder Dog, to be continued. All right, Sean, what did you think of this premiere issue of the Super Friends? I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I think it's neat how there are some things that are stereotypical uh, comic book stories where you know, the villains are attacking three different places. They go in groups to try to stop them. Like, that's very much like a Justice League split yeah. up. Tale, very Gardner of. Fox, yeah. But I like how you expect the villains to take something from each location, but they actually don't. All of the villains actually fail in mm-hmm. their mission. 
which seems weird, especially for a part one of a two-part story. Right. So like, in some ways, it's very traditional, but then in other ways, even in Super Friends, they're shaking it up a little bit. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I said I hadn't read this book in a little while, and it was kind of cool. It's like, all right, this is yeah, – again, this is – we talked about it. It's aimed at young kids, obviously, for fans of the Super Friends TV series. And why this show – why this uh, book didn't start for three years until after – the, uh, the the show started is something that E. Nelson Birdwell addresses in the uh, text piece, but we'll get to that in a moment. But um, art-wise, what do you think of the cover, which literally has the Super Friends bursting forth from a TV screen at our villains? I love it. It's so dynamic, and, and they are bursting from the TV, and all the villains are shocked and surprised. <laughs> I, I think fantastic image. Everyone is seen clearly. Um, you might argue maybe Toy Man just because his back is towards the quote-unquote camera. But I, I think it's fantastic. And all the shards of glass coming from the screen, I think it's so cool. Yeah, it's a little on the stiff side, and that's unfortunately the result of having Vince Coletta ink it. Uh, I mean, Vince Coletta, just everything that he inked kind of made things a little stiff. And I am, you know, just if I'm going to play favorites a little, I will say I'm a little little bothered that Aquaman is kind of bringing up the rear there. He's kind of just tucked <laughs> in in the background. But, I mean, I can't blame uh, the artist Ernie Chua or Ernie Chan, as he was also known, for too much. I mean, this is like, what, uh, 13 figures that he's got to work into the cover? That's a lot. On top of it, you've got the logo, the classic Super Friends logo, plus the new little bullet that they added, a DC TV comic, which featured Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman jumping from a TV screen. So there's a lot going on in this cover, so I can't get I can get too upset that Aquaman is kind of really not in it all that much. Um, but it's cool that the, you know, we've got the villain. I like Penguin just sort of standing there. It was just sort of like the villains were not prepared for the Super <laughs> Friends to jump through the TV. But yeah, overall, it's a, it's a pretty nice image. Art-wise... I am a big fan of Rick Estrada. He was somebody that, when I was a kid, I didn't like him at all. And I have grown over time to really like him. I, he's got a very, very unique style. It's kind of cartoony, a little... I know I always keep comparing people to Alex Toth, but it is kind of Toth-like. Um, again, inked as inked by Vince Coletta, I'm not as thrilled. Uh, there are some moments here where I think Joe Orlando is doing the inking, and you can see that um, some of the stuff is really on model, like on the uh, the third page where Marvin is talking to Wonder Woman, and mm-hmm. he says, really, okay, I volunteer for that Amazon stuff, Wonder Woman, and she's looking. She looks just like the Alex Toth model sheets. Uh, as she as she's talking to Marvin, so I really dig that. Um, one of the things I thought was sort of remarkable when you go and you look at this comic, and you'll see some of the images on our website, FireAndWaterPodcast.com, is when you get to the page of the villains training their junior, their you know their 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 sidekicks, right? I, the the costume of Honeysuckle. <laughs> we have to talk about this, uh, and the only way this is even remotely sellable in a code-approved comic and a code-approved comic aimed at small children i mean sean do you want to describe what honeysuckle's costume is because there's not much of it so it definitely is uh of the time (laughs) it's basically a bikini um with uh like a leafy bottom bikini part and then um almost like little mermaid aerial shells but they are like plant based. So right. almost plant based pasties, kind of, mm-hmm. but lar- larger. I remember, re- I mean, I bought this comic as a kid and I'm sure it didn't register with me because I would have been like five. So who cares? But when I went back and looked at it, I don't know, t- 20 years ago, I was like, how the hell did they get this costume up- across the comics code? I mean, she's basically 
mostly nude with just some slight pasties going on. And I realized, well, part of it is it was drawn by Rick Estrada. And I think Rick Estrada had a kind of safe, cartoony, non-purient style. And so it looks kind of a little more wholesome than it really is. And I mean, but when you first see it, though, you're just like, holy jeez, they really I mean, Poison Ivy was always kind of a sex pot as a, as a Batman villain. But she's practically uh, a Puritan compared to what uh, Honeysuckle is dressed like. I mean, good Lord. I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't want to get I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I don't I think if I was one of the other teenage sidekicks, I'd be pretty distracted as what's going on here. I mean, like, I don't care about this villainy. I got to go talk to Honeysuckle. Good Lord. And actually, in the panel where she's fighting Robin, where she covers him with the vines and the honey, her, I guess, like, bra or whatever is much more like a sport bra, where it goes all yeah, the way yeah. bra. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, too, for the 70s, like, 76, I mean, I think it kind of is in keeping with that tone, with that the fashion style. Right. Uh, I mean, of course, these villains, this lineup uh, that uh, E. Nelson Birdwell has assembled – uh, it's sort of interesting in that, I mean, Poison Ivy was an ongoing villain for Batman, and of course everybody knows the, the Penguin, uh, and the Toy Man was, was standard and Cheetah, but the Human Flying Fish, that's a deep cut. Human, <laughs> human Flying Fish had not appeared in a comic book since Adventure Comics number 272, 1960. So this character had been dormant for a decade and a half when E. Nelson Burwell decided to, to extricate him. I don't I would love to know why, and maybe I'll, if I do some research, maybe there's interviews with E. Nelson Bridwell. I would love to know why he chose such an obscure villain as opposed to Black Manta or even Ocean Master. It's sort of strange that he would dig up such a, you know, I mean, maybe because the human flank is just like a little less threatening or something, but that's a deep cut of ENB to, 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 to pull out. I mean, the human flying fish, for Pete's sakes. When you, when you mention uh, threatening with Black Manta, um, you would be the perfect person. When was the Death of the Prince storyline in regards to 76 when this came out? You know, it would have been right around this time. It would have been so almost I, exactly around this time. And especially how E. Nelson Birdwell was trying to tie this into regular DC continuity. I definitely can see why they wouldn't use Black Manta but you could still use Ocean Master or someone like that. Somebody, the Fisherman, something. I mean, but that's a that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, that yeah, probably that Black Mana was probably made, not used for the same reason the Joker wasn't going to be used. He's just mm-hmm. a little too dark for a kids thing. Um, one little yeah. thing that I noticed uh, is on again on this uh, this page of the villains training their sidekicks. There's a shot of the cheetah where she has gone down on one knee and she's talking yep. to Kitten and she says, you're as lithe as a cat kitten. That I believe is a piece of HG Peter art that Rick Estrada was lifting. Cause that pose looks very, very familiar. And in fact, I think if you dig through some of the treasury editions of the time and they use like kind of stock art poses to do like the yep. ancillary material, that's the shot of the cheetah drawn by HG Peter. So I think uh, Rick Estrada just took out some tracing paper or, or at the very least just looked at the drawing and copied it. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, and also the the shot of Kitten when she's coming down from the blimp, mm-hmm. I believe that's on the lunch, the Super Friends lunchbox. <laughs> if it's not, it's really similar. Fantastic. I, I had that lunchbox. I love that thing. Boy, that was I great. still had that lunchbox. <laughs> uh, now, again, the, the, in terms of sidekicks, she, Sardine. I mean, Human Flying Fish is already not 
uh, impressive or scary. And then naming him Sardine is even more. I mean, none of the none of the sidekicks are, are terribly threatening, uh, but I would say Sardine is even more kind of like, oh boy, we're kind of this is we're a little thin on the ground here. But again, again, it's meant for children. It's not meant to be threatening. Um, I love when we go back to the trouble alert and we go back to the Hall of Justice and the uh, the guy from Star Labs, Doctor Michaels, says. Project SR is in danger. And you have that panel of Aquaman saying, what's Project SR? And Superman says, I'm sorry, Aquaman, but I'm sworn to secrecy. What a dick. You know? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, And, too, like, he's uh, the – Dr. Michaels is bringing it up in front of them. Yeah, right. It's clearly okay. Like, what these, but like, come on. And then the very next panel, it, Dr. Michaels goes, We trust your friend, Superman. Apparently, you don't, but we do. <laughs> like, oh, geez. All right. So, fine. Uh, so then again, we break up into the, the very scenes. And of course, one of the hallmarks of the Super Friends is the rounded corners. Every <laughs> single panel. Uh, in, in in sort of the regular DC universe, rounded corners would, would denote a flashback. But in here, every single panel is a rounded corner. And as someone who has occasionally drawn a comic book page in his life, doing rounded quarters is extra work. So I hope they paid Rick Estrada or the inker a little bit extra just to, to do all this because it's, 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 just, it's just extra. You know, having to do this rounded – you had to get your, your circle template out and do those rounded corners every single time as opposed to uh, pointy corners. So, you know, it's, it's, again, a little extra work here. But I mean yeah. – that, that- that was more to emulate like a TV screen, right? Correct? Exactly, exactly. The sense of that you're looking at a, a TV screen, and this is a very TV kind of Super Friends plot. I mean, it really would read that. It would read that way if you saw it. Would, it would work as a uh, as an episode of the the Super Friends, except for the fact that you just have so many characters running around. So, so yeah, we've got all the different sequences. Uh, we've got you know Superman getting the lead mask put on his face, which is kind of a cool visual. He kind of looks like the Man in the Iron Mask there, where he's mm-hmm. blinded. I like that, and the the, the scene with, again, Poison Ivy and then the, the thing with Aquaman and the human flying fish. Human flying fish, for again, for not being a very threatening villain, he kind of has the most mean-spirited threat because he's telling the guys – first of all, their lab is underwater, which doesn't seem like the greatest idea in the world. But he, send, he says, basically, I'm going to crack the dome and you're all going to drown. Uh, which didn't happen much in the cartoon. They couldn't threaten lives that much. But here he's like, no, I'm going to kill you all unless you hand over the material. It definitely raises it to another level. Mm -hmm. And I like that. So then, again, later on, Batman and and Wonder Woman get subdued. And again, this one ends a little bit differently in that Chick and Kitten are subdued. They're brought back to the Hall of Justice, which they call – one of them says, so this is Justice League headquarters, and then it's it's either Marvin or Wendy that corrects them, and he says, no, 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 this is not – that's the JLA satellite is in orbit 22,300 miles up. This is the Hall of Justice established for training young people who want to make crime fighting their career, which I don't believe we ever heard in this show. I don't think they ever said that the Hall of Justice was specifically – for that, it was just that was just always just the whole that was just the Super Friends, you know, meeting place. Correct, right? E. Nelson did such a fantastic job of integrating the comic with regular DC continuity. And in this issue, we have Star Labs, which didn't appear at, at the time on Super Friends, the show. Uh, we have Robin talk about going to Hudson University, which was happening at right, this time. Right. 
I mean, he did such a fantastic job. Yeah, I mean, he was really the perfect writer for this because, I mean, he knew all the stuff and it, it was important to him. And it, it's it's done in a fun way. I don't think it's in a kind of obsessive way. It's like, oh, all right, this is, you know, the Super Friends exist in the world of the Justice League and later other members would appear and we'll get to all those. But, I mean, it's so it's a it's fun the way he sort of works it in. And then, of course, we have a nice cliffhanger where we find out that Chick and Kitten are, in fact, not ready to turn uh, turn good guys. The whole thing is a plot, and the Penguin has been listening in the whole time, and it's Wonder Dog that's the only one that hears it, and it ends with a silhouette of Wonder Dog, ruff, 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 and uh, Marvin is like, leave me alone, I'm busy. And then and you even hear Wendy say, what a great gym we have. So <laughs> it's like it's excited. And it ends with, again, in the cliffhanger, will Wonder Dog tell the super friends of the traitor in their mists? And will he be in time? Tune in next issue for the conclusion of the exciting story on sale the third week of September. And you can almost hear kind of like that Stanley Ralph Ross Batman narration, the way it would end. The, the, the Super Friends show didn't end like that, but you can sort of hear it the way it, it wraps up. It, gets, it has that kind of classic narration to it. Or or even better, the Ted Knight narration. I even That's true. Even better. You get the, the Super Friends. Yeah, the stuff like that. That's my terrible <laughs> Ted, Ted Knight impression. <laughs> Uh, and then we go into the the, uh, the the text page, which is called Superfans. Uh, on the header, we have a the shot of the Alex Toth drawing of the Superfans, which appeared on the Treasury edition. Although here, um, yep. Alex, Toth is, Alex Toth's Superman face has not been redrawn as it was on the Treasury. On the Treasury, Correct. they had it redone by Al Plastino. I believe. But here we see the, the original. And I love – in this uh, text piece, Ian B. is actually very, very straightforward with his fans. He even says, I have no idea why we haven't done a Super Friends comic before this. The show's been on for a couple of years. I don't know, which is sort of funny. I like that he just cops to that. Uh, he's not talking down to little kids. You know, he's, he's maybe assuming that they're going to read this text piece. So I like that he just says straight up. I have no idea why we haven't done it before now, but uh, we're, we're doing it. We're doing it now, at least. This is this is one instance just one instance where it really makes me sad that when they collect stories for a graphic novel or an omnibus or any material like that, they never collect the letter columns or the text pieces. And especially this one should be in any Super Friends collection because it explains the history of Wendy and Marvin and how they fit into the DC universe and how why they are part of the Super Friends. Well, I'm glad you get to that because this features an amazing, this features an amazing moment where E. Nelson Burble gets kind of dark uh, because he talks about, he says, it became necessary in doing this magazine to explain the Hall of Justice and the kids, Wendy and Marvin. Obviously, these kids are being trained for careers in law enforcement by the Super Friends. The Hall of Justice is their training academy. But since it would hardly been built for only two young people, it stands to reason that the Super Doers plan to train others sometime in the future. Wendy and Marvin are kind of a pilot program. But why these two kids particularly? That is a good question. I have done quite a bit of thinking on the subject. The first script sent to us made Wendy Bruce Wayne's niece and, absurdly, had her openly referring to the Cape, Crew, Cape Crime Fighter as Uncle Bruce while he introduced her to people who were not supposed to know the Batman secret identity as my niece. At the time, Bruce was believed to have been an only child, although it later it was later revealed that he had a brother. However, due to brain damage, this sibling had been institutionalized since infancy and so could not be Wendy's father. He is now dead. <laughs> Jiminy Christmas, e. Nelson Bridwell. That paragraph is like, oh my God. I'm like, 
Imagine telling like a six-year-old, oh yeah, do you, daddy, did I ever have a water that was institutionalized? Like, what, what the hell? And I can't say 100% sure, but that does sound like Bob Haney, doesn't it? Oh, that's Bob Haney. That's completely <laughs> Bob Haney. Bob Haney was like, I don't care. Batman had 12 brothers. What difference does it make to me if I need to write? I need to insert Wildcat into the story, and I want to put the brother in. That, just the way he ends with, he is now dead after a life of being institutionalized. Well, too bad for him then, wasn't it? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Um, you talk about on Power Records about how Power Records were uh, aimed at kids, but had to deal with you know suicidal clowns and people, things like that. This is a, kids in the seventies, man. We were tough. I just had to deal with it, man. You had to roll with that stuff. I was just like, wow. I, I just, I just love that statement. He is now dead. Like, okay, let's just move on. Like, all right, fine. It's the way it is. So yeah, and he explains exactly how Wendy and Marvin are, are related, and he comes up with some relatively pretty, pretty clever. Uh, ways he figures out that the Marvin White is related to the actual Diana Prince because, of course, if you ever read the original Wonder Woman story, you'll find out that Wonder Woman is not Diana Prince. She borrows that name from a a, a whack uh, from yeah. during World War II, and he figures that. And so, you know, Ian, Ian B really he earned his keep. You know, he really figured out some some fun ways, and even asks reader at the end. He says, "What do you readers think of my solution to the question of the kid's identity? Do you have a better one?" And how do you like the Super Friends? Good Lord, thank God Twitter didn't exist when Ian B was around. I don't want to know what the, what the responses he would have got. But otherwise, it's a really solid issue. I think it's a little surprising that it's a, um, a part one of a two-parter because uh, most of the Super Friends stories, with some exceptions, as you mentioned early on uh, at the top of the show about the three-parter, most of these were kind of one-and-dones. But yeah. it's, it's a big story. It's introducing a lot of characters and, of course – it, it you know inspires you to buy the second issue because you've only read the first part of the story. Yeah, and it surprised me when um, they did a Super Friends collection, uh, gosh, back probably in the early 2000s. Yeah. And they printed this story, but not part two. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I guess they they wanted to get the first one in there, but not the not the second part, which yeah. is a little too bad because it was a nice, you know, it would be a nice collected story. So... Um, so I, before we uh, wrap up our look at this particular issue, I have a couple of things that I want to go through kind of um, issue by issue and, and sort of get my guests' thoughts about it. So the first is called The Best Friend. And my question to you, Sean, is of all the Super Friends, which character fared the best? Which one do you think had the best moment or just had the most moments uh, to shine in this particular story? I'm going to answer your question with a question. Who was the only super friend who went out on his own to defeat the villain? Exactly. That would be Aquaman. <laughs> Aquaman got a couple of pages all by himself. Batman and Wonder Woman, they share a, 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 you know, essentially a chapter, and Superman and Robin share a chapter. But Aquaman, he's all by himself under the water taking on the human flying fish. So my answer is probably the same as yours. It's Aquaman, considering that I just complained that Aquaman didn't get you know much space on the cover. Ian B definitely gave him uh, the the premier slot because he gets the most to do all by himself. I mean, of course, by having him underwater, it makes the most sense. We, you know, it would be it would be harder to contrive a reason to get Wonder Woman under there or Superman. But still, yeah, Aquaman gets a whole couple of pages to himself. I agree wholeheartedly. All right. And then the other section I want to ask about is I'm going to call it Villain Roundup, where, as we will see as we go on through this series, 
Um, e. Nelson Beardwell used a lot of villains from the DC universe, but he also created a lot of villains. There's a lot of brand new characters developed in these 47 issues, some of which went on. A lot of the heroes that were created, like the Global Guardians, went on to life outside the Super Friends comic book. But a lot of the villains that appeared in Super Friends pretty much stayed in Super Friends. So of all the villains that he's creating here, which would be Chick and Kitten and, and Toy Boy uh, and Honeysuckle and uh, Sardine – which one do you think maybe had potential for life outside of the Super Friends comic? I would like to see Kitten as almost a cross between Harley Quinn and Ravager, mm. where you kind of don't know if – like she goes back and forth between good and bad and evil, and she kind of has her own agenda. And she's – I don't want to say a little bit meta, but she's a little bit wacky in the way that Harley Quinn is, although I think Harley Quinn is way overdone now. <laughs> but I, I think that could be a, a neat fit for Kitten. All right. I buy that. I My initial answer was Honeysuckle simply because, you know, yowza. Uh, but then I realized that like I, – I, and I wrote in my notes like – I'm surprised that there isn't any Honeysuckle cosplay. And now I realize, well, Honeysuckle cosplay is just Poison Ivy cosplay. Mm-hmm. When, when, yeah. when girls dress or even men dress as, as Poison Ivy, uh, a lot of times when Poison Ivy is drawn, she's drawn in that, you know, basically no clothes at all. Uh, so they basically just morphed Honeysuckle into, into Poison Ivy, and that's kind of how she looks. Uh, Although yeah. I think she could work well now how Poison Ivy is kind of like green and much more plant-like. You could still have Honeysuckle being human and more of like a temptress, seductress, that kind of character. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I'm saying E&B really came up with a whole lot of characters. He was, he was really uh, rivaling sort of Roy Thomas and creating lots of new characters to fit into these, you know, sort of like almost plug holes and things like that. And so uh, is there's a there's, we're going to see a lot of really interesting villains. Some, you know, maybe not the most impressive in the world, and some are just meant to be one-offs. But there's a lot of a lot of creativity going on here. And so overall, this is a really solid first issue. If you were a fan of the cartoon, which of course I was, you were very satisfied with this comic because it read like uh, the cartoon. It was bright colors. The real the artwork is sort of very straightforward, very sort of simple. Um, and it featured lots of action featuring the characters that you liked the most. Superman, I mean, of course, I was most partial to Aquaman, but I loved all the Super Friends, and it was great that they all got a moment to shine here. Again, Aquaman got the most to do, but it was it's just a great, great series and a good way to start off uh, this uh, this comic book. So that is Super Friends number one. Now, before we wrap up here, of course, this is not the actual first Super Friends comic book that was ever published. DC did a limited collector's edition, Super Friends, a full year before this. Now, maybe that book sold so well that they figured, well, that, you know, now they know there's an audience for it. Now, lucky Luke Dobb and I covered that over on Treasury Cast, in fact, the second episode of Treasury Cast. So if you want to hear my thoughts on that really great comic book, go over to Treasury Cast and listen to that episode. But, Sean, I want to ask you while we're here, uh, what are your thoughts on that Treasury edition? Actually, I'll get to that in a minute. I do want to bring up uh, the first issue of Super Friends, the first two issues of Super Friends, how much they have in common with the paperback Super Friends, The Revenge of the Super Foes. Right, 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 right. It takes the same five villains. The, the paperback has uh, the same five villains in a story that's told in prose with illustrations. Right, which we covered on an episode of Fire and Water a couple of years ago. I think, exactly. just, I think last year, just last year, I think. Yep. Um, but it's neat because that story doesn't have the kid's sidekicks. No. And it, it's neat. And I'm assuming E. Nelson Bridwell wrote that as well. 
And it's just neat to see the same kind of story with the same villains, but done in a completely different way. Yeah, it's weird that that book was published, I believe, in 1978. So it's like a full two years after this. And so obviously he still kind of like had this idea of the, the super foes, like the super friends. There being like a, you know, a super, a, a villain team to take on the super friends. Now, of course, they would do that on the challenge of the super friends. But we were, we were a couple of years away from that at this point. So I would I was always curious as to why. A couple of years after the debut of the Super Friends comic, they ended up doing this book, uh, and it was clearly meant to be, as a, to borrow Bill Bell's phrase about uh, the Super Super Kids, uh, a pilot program. Clearly, they were hoping they would maybe do more of these, but there were just the ones, or maybe it didn't sell that well, or something like that. It's a fun book. You and I had a good time covering that, but yeah, it's, it remains a very kind of strange little piece of Super Friends merchandising that kind of nobody really noticed at the time. And yet, he said he was he dusted off the super foes and brought him back. So obviously, it was something that he really liked. Yeah, and that's it's a great story. It's a great spin on these two issues, the first and second one. Yep. All right. So yeah, the, so the treasury. What are your thoughts on the the treasury edition? Well, Rob, I feel like I've been tomahawked. Ah, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that's a that's a verb now that we all use when the cover promises something that the insides don't quite deliver. And don't get me wrong, because I love Justice League. I love the Justice League Limited Collector's Edition. I, I thought that was great. Um, however, uh, when I got the Super Friends Treasury and I opened it up and I did not see beautiful Alex Toth art on every single page, to a degree, I was disappointed. It is a strange collection. I mean, they didn't have a Super Friends comic to perm from. At that point. So, I mean, what else really could they have done other than reprint Justice League stories? Because they weren't going to do an all original book. Uh, but, yeah, it is a little curious that it's it promises the Super Friends and then you get it and you're like, huh, all right, it's it's stories from the Justice League. At least, as you mentioned, it does feature a couple of pages of Alex Toth drawing the Super Friends. And, in fact, it features Wendy and Marvin going to take a, a tour uh, and they get to meet all the members of the Justice League, even like, and there's a whole bit about like the uh, the honorary members, and there's like a little appearances honorary by like Sargon and Metamorpho. So it's it's a great set. It's really really wonderful. And there's even a piece by Alex Toth about how to work in animation. But yes, it is not quite a Super French treasury. And we of course never got an actual Super French treasury. They never did one. They never collected the any of these stories in a treasury format. They did in a digest, which of course we've covered. But that's that's a darn shame because I it would have been that would have been a great book to have a Super French treasury, a, a genuine Super French treasury. And, and having said that, I do love each and every page that is the Super Friends done by Alex Toth. Um, yeah, you get the Super Friends, you get the Justice League, you get a ton of other characters, Mira, uh, Zatanna, which, and I'm amazed Sargon got in there. Yeah, when are you going to see right, Alex Toth drawing Sargon or Metamorpho? Like, that's, kind of, that's a deep cut. So, yeah, that's a, it's a really, really fun book. Luke and I really... Wax that book's car uh, for if I may mix my metaphors, but but yeah. So if you want to listen to us talk about, it, go over to Treasury Cast, and yeah, it's it's a really good book. The cover is great. It features you can just hear that music, the bum 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 bum, just playing when you look at it, and it has a nice little back cover where they're saying all the super friends are waving at you, saying hello, hello, super hello, kids, it's super friends. But yes, unfortunately, it's it's sort of a super friends treasury in name only. But I said, I have to assume that it sold well, and that's what led to eventually uh, this book being on the stand. So 
I guess that is going to do it for this very first episode for All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast. Since this story is continued, uh, and the next episode, the next uh, issue is called Trapped by the Superfoes, Sean, will you come back and join me for part two of this story? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Absolutely. All right. Fantastic. That's going to be great. So uh, I'm not exactly sure what uh, the uh, how often this show is going to come out. Uh, I don't like to overpromise. I want to just sort of do it when I can get around to it, sort of. And I do a lot of other shows on the network. But I promise we will be doing a second episode sort of before you know it. Uh, I am going to be doing a listener feedback section for every episode. Uh, so for the next episode. So please leave your comments, what you thought about the Super Friend series, this particular episode of For All Mankind over on our website, Fire and Water Podcast. Dot com. Uh, of course, this show already has a Twitter feed because I can't help myself. You can just go to uh, on Twitter and it's at For All Mankind SF, and we're talking about Super Friends over there. And of course, if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, you can go to Patreon, patreon.com/slash FW Podcast, and there you can unlock for different pledges. You can unlock all sorts of rewards. One of which is to be name checked on a Fire and Water Podcast Network show of your choice. So, if you really love For All Mankind. Leave us a uh, pledge, and we'll mention here on on this show. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Sean, thank you so much for joining. You know I love talking to you, especially when we're getting to talk super friends. Absolutely. I absolutely loved it. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. FW TV podcast.